Blog Talk Radio. Introducing in the red corner, American Tennis! And introducing in the blue corner, your host for American Tennis, Mr. Chuck Reese! Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get in the game. Once again, this is Coach Chuck Creasy. And folks, if you can believe this, I started American Tennis. Uh, we started doing it every week exactly nine years ago today, 2012, 2012 on June 2nd. So my golly gee whiz, we got the 19th year, or excuse me, ninth year anniversary right now. But I, this is American Tennis, and every week, as you know, I start out pretty much the same way telling you, folks, our job is to stand up, speak out, say what needs to be said, always address issues. We don't address people, but we need to make a difference and uh, not just make points. We need to try to make difference in our world, which we have some control over. Our circle of control, a little bit, circle of influence is the tennis world and those people around us. But uh, it's a big, our circle of concern may be really big, all of American tennis and what's going on, but just take care of what's around us. But stand up, speak out, say what needs to be said. I always, I always started out for many years, and I'll come back that I haven't done it in a couple years, but I always say Edmund Burke said that <clears throat> all that it takes for evil to prosper is for good men, good people to do nothing. And uh, we need you to we need to do a lot. Well, I I wanted to introduce today to starting out. We have a very very I, I don't want to just say interesting, enthusiastic, energy uh, a father that's done it all, but also a coach, a father, a teacher. And uh, I first met Pete Bauer over in Atlanta. Actually, I think watching I, I think it was Kalamazoo, Michigan. I just was watching one of his players, uh, one of his sons playing. We ended up going to Georgia Tech, but I also met him at a over in over in it wasn't Hilton Head, I believe it was over here um, in Charleston at a, at a tournament, and uh, I met him. But the energy that he has for tennis, the energy that he has for 
his family, for his sons, is is contagious. And uh, I'm very, very glad to welcome him on the program here. Let's see if I'd click him on there. Pete, welcome yeah, on hey, the program, Chuck. American Tennis. How are you doing? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? Uh, good. I appreciate appreciate cutting your lunch short or getting you off the court or whatever, but uh, daggone it, we need what you have to say. And um, I think if you and I hung out a bunch, we'd probably agree on 78.9% at least. We'd probably be in the middle on part of it, and there'd probably be 5 or 6% we didn't agree on, but... Uh, You've done a lot, and let me just go through this real quick. Uh, the biggest reason I've asked uh, Pete on today, folks, is he has three sons. They've all been successful in tennis. And uh, there's a couple things here. First of all, if you're a parent teaching tennis, you know how hard that is. It's it's almost it's it's the hardest thing to juggle ever to go from parent to coach to parent to coach to advisor to. I've been in coaching 48 years now. College coaching this year 44 coming up. And uh, I've got a daughter that likes tennis. I've got a son doing baseball and an older daughter doing, she was a runner. But it's much easier with the girls uh, for the father because they just, there's a communication, I don't want to say gap, Pete. It's it, it's just like it's okay. You know, they say, oh, it's just dad. But when it's your son, your son, I mean, they gain all of the self uh confidence and everything from from the father usually it's the oedipus thing i've told uh people who have girls at play usually it works it's easier if you have the father coaching the daughter and then the mom coaching the sons it doesn't but you have done it pretty dang successfully and so by the way like the bryans have done it i think of uh doggone Dick Leach with the Leach boys, and there's some people that have done it well. I think Stan Smith did a great job with his his kids. He never got, uh, you know, they just they never felt they had to rebel or anything. But you've had three sons play at the national level. You had a 25-year-old play, and then you have your, your 22-year-old son. I can't believe Zummy is already a senior in yeah, he college. Graduated. He's just graduated Holy. from Georgia Tech and. He was the captain of the team this year. I'm very proud of him. It's it's hard to believe that that journey started at six years old, and now it's it's you know come to another chapter in his life where uh, you know he still has a couple of years of eligibility, but he's looking at law school now. Wow, just fantastic! And to be able to go to school there at a Power Five conference school, and then your second son coming up is getting to go to Georgia Tech as well next year to play for the great Kenny Thorne. I brag on I bragged on Kenny Thorne and. Um, Brian Shelton a lot on last week's program about the fantastic. Well, for good reason. For good reason. They're <laughs> unbelievable people and unbelievable coaches. But most importantly, they just they understand you know what it is to mentor you know young men and uh, absolutely all, all credit to those two guys. Yeah, Brian Shelton became the first I think ten, a coach in history to win a national championship on the women's side of Georgia Tech, and then two weeks ago or a week and a half ago. At, at the University of Florida, and so, uh, you know, just all the credit to those guys, and uh, I'm proud that one of my foreign players, John Des Dunes, coached them at Georgia Tech. I think uh, Gary, great Gary Groleman down there probably recruited them, but John Des Dunes coached them, and uh, just great human beings. But, Pete, one of the things that endeared me to you a little bit was that you're a fellow Hoosier. 
You grew up in, in yeah. South Bend, Indiana, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was a good one. Not tennis that country, was a good more one basketball go. country and Notre Dame country. But uh, yeah, I survived the winters, and uh, when I got an opportunity to move down south, I took it. Right, right. And then you went on to Miami, Ohio. Played for was it Jim Frederick? Did you play for Jim Frederick there, or who'd you play I for? I did. Yeah, I played for Jim. Yeah, Coach Frederick was <laughs> a great guy. Really good. Well, guy. you've He's you've had Tennessee now. Yeah, he's back coaching at Carson Newman, actually. And uh, Jim went on to Michigan State and uh, Carson Newman. And so, you know, that that's fantastic. And unfortunately, I think they dropped the men's program in Miami, Ohio, which they're perennially, they won that uh, Mid-America, was it Mid-America Conference? No, it wasn't. Was yeah, it, we, uh, won, we won the MAC, yeah, we won the MAC Conference uh, several, several times in a row. And um, unfortunately, yeah, the program got dropped, but. Yeah. You know, it so was, we was a great draw. experience, and I was lucky. I was lucky to be a part of it. Yeah, we want to talk about that a little bit, and I appreciate it. If you've got to go, let me know, but I'm hoping you can go. You're good for the hour? Are you good? I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. All right, man. I'm, I'm ready to get going here. But, well, obviously, the, the, the where you're next, but you've, you've been through so much tennis as a player, as, as a, a junior player, a college player, then bringing your sons along and all of them being quite successful. You So you've – You've handled that well. So people listen to the program. Usually we have parents, coaches, teachers. But I, I know a lot of parents listen to American Tennis, and we have probably the toughest maze to work through right now if you are a tennis player in the United States uh, that anyone could imagine. Um, I think the USTA may be getting their act together a little bit better, Pete, with uh, stuff. But I, I've often said it was easier to book uh, six Six connections in, in 18 different airports uh, to go to Timbuktu than it was to enter a junior tennis tournament. So it, it's getting really, since the computer stuff, it's getting hard. But not only that, your your kids grow up, they do all this tennis, you you take them, you spend a lot of money, and then at the end of it, there's you don't know whether there's a scholarship or not or even place to play or not. But I, I'd like for you, if you could, to go back, and I want this to be your program, but go back and talk about how you got your kids, first of all, interested in something that that you loved. I had three sons that are raised, and, and I, I, uh, I turned them off to it, I think, that I just, you know, I tried to pound it into them. I was doggone it growing up in uh, the park in Indianapolis. Never had a tennis lesson. I wanted them to know all about it. And... Um, but anyhow, you've done a wonderful job. If you could start there and then go into the junior junior tennis that you've had to do to get them to a high national level, and then, of course, the college search, and then, you know, of course, uh, now and everything, <clears throat> and being in college. But and then we'll transfer to the second part of the program, if we can, to what's going on in American tennis and how we can help parents sort of make that bridge for their kids or give them some direction. Because sure, it's it's, sure. it's tougher. It's you know they call it a pathway, Pete, but I think it's supposed to be a, a open freeway, a highway, an expressway. I think there's lots of ways to do it, but there's some similarities, you know. So, so thank you, thank you, right. Pete. So go ahead. Well, no, thank you, thank you for the time to tell my my story and the story of my kids. Uh, okay, obviously I have a passion for tennis. I played the USCA Junior Circuit, the Nationals, and. No, then played collegiately, tried to play out over in Europe a little bit afterwards and decided I'd better go to law school. 
uh, to get an education because it's a little tougher out there than I thought it was uh, even back in the 80s. But uh, I brought that passion to Atlanta, and when I had my first child, I wanted him to be a tennis player uh, just like I was because I know the beauty of the game and what it can bring you uh, in life uh, and the lessons and the discipline and the dedication it takes to play what I consider the toughest sport in the world to play. Uh, and my son, this is my son, Peter, who's currently 26, did fairly well. And he would come up to our neighborhood courts because, as you know, Chuck, in Atlanta, Alta has such a huge presence. Every neighborhood has at least tennis, two tennis courts in their neighborhood. And most of them have, on average, at, at, uh, have four. So my son would come up with me, and we would spend our evenings after work, uh, you know, hitting the tennis ball. And I, and I taught him. And uh, lo and behold, he said, Dad, I want to start playing some tournaments. And I said to him, you have to promise me three things if you play tennis tournaments. Uh, first, you got to learn how to keep score. If you don't know how to keep score, you can't play this game. Well, that was easy with the video games and all. He learned that quickly. Secondly, you got to learn to get your serve in. You can't play the game if you can't hit a serve in. So he came up with me when I would be at the courts teaching some lessons, and he would take a basket of balls, and he would hit serves on the court next to me. And then I said, third, you got to promise me you're never going to cry on the tennis court. And this is what I think the most important thing is of my kids is, and none of them have ever cried, this is supposed to be fun. You play tennis. And what I mean, and I emphasize, is the word play. Just like you would play hide-and-seek or, you know, tag or, you know, wiffle ball, it's to be fun. You play. Play has that connotation of fun. You don't work tennis. You play tennis. And to this day, when my son Zummy would go off on a college match or my son Robert would go off on a junior match, the first thing I say, or actually the only thing I say to them when they go on the court is have fun. But the first thing I say when they get off the court, win or lose, is did you have fun? And my son, Zummy, and this is, this is true, he would come off a court at, let's say, a major tournament with a smile on his face, and people would say, hey, great job, Zummy, that was a great match. Uh, what was your score? And he said, oh, I lost. And they said, you've got to be kidding me, because he'd have a smile on his face. And, Chuck, I think that's the secret to having these kids in junior tennis and to all these parents is, you know, if it's not fun, it's just a matter of time until the kids decide they don't want to do it anymore. I don't know at what age, but they call it burnout. I think I think burnout is a is a uh, cop out to be honest with you, because I don't think it's burnout. Mm-hmm. I think it's when when the game stops being fun because the parents putting pressure and the parents saying, you know, how much money I'm investing in this, and you got to get this, or you got to beat this kid, or you got to get ranked here, you got to have your, you know, tennis recruiting got to reach a five star. Or you got to become nowadays, uh, uh, you know, 12.5 UTR. There's so many different measurements that these parents are holding their kids accountable for. But what they're losing sight of is this is a game. This is supposed to be fun. You're supposed to be playing this. And uh, honestly, I think that's what I was able to do with my two youngest kids. I lost sight of that with my oldest. Uh, you know, he started feeling the pressure unbeknownst to me and you know i'm lucky this is my third tour of duty in junior tennis and i really feel that i did him a disservice but he was the guinea pig and although i thought we had fun you know there's weird ways of putting pressure on someone even though you don't think you're doing it and you know with 
his experience, I was able then to to learn from my faults, and um, and he was good. He won six rounds in a super national. Uh, he was a good player, uh, and I learned from the experience I had with him, and tried not to make the same mistakes I did with Zummy and then with my son Robert. And uh, you know, thanks to Peter, like I said, being my guinea pig, he helped those two reach the the levels that they've reached, and. Uh, you know, I just regret that I wasn't able to see through my mistakes and faults sooner enough to keep him in the game. But at 15, he decided he didn't want to put up with the pressure any longer. And, you know, it's hard work. This, this tennis is not easy. You're spending hours on the court. You're, you're, you're crawling all over the place. Uh, you're, you know, playing kids that, you know, are, you know, mano a mano with you. And it's unlike any other sport. And I always say to people, tennis doesn't have a barometer. Like every other sport has a barometer, some way to measure yourself. If you and I, Chuck, went out and played golf and you and I shot 70 and you shot 69, I'm still buying you lunch because I just shot 70. I'm ecstatic. I don't see that I lost to you by a stroke. I saw that I shot one of my personal bests. Mm-hmm. Or if I run my fastest or swim my fastest or jump my highest, you know, there are marks that I can judge how my performance was. In tennis, there isn't. You win or you lose. And that's a tough pill for a kid that's 10 years old, 12 years old, 14, 16, 18, even 56 to take. Losing's not easy. And so you have to sit there and just remember this is a game that we choose to play and that we want our kids to play, so keep it fun. That, you know, that's so much wisdom here, so much wisdom and everything. And we uh, there's so much comes to mind. I remember... Uh, my oldest son, you know, oldest sons have to carry the flag for the family, first of all. And all that peer group stuff, it's really interesting. I've co- After 44 years of coaching, Pete, um, I found out that it's always hardest on the oldest because they're the flag bearers, the ones, the middle children and the, and the baby, the family, they have the easiest job because they sort of see the battlefield and they know where the craters are and everything and the uh, they know where everything is ahead of time, and they take stuff in two or three times. So I think about that also. And I remember uh, one – I got two, a quick quick one here. I did camp for all those years, and I, I had lots and lots of kids come through. But I'd always have the parents come through at the end and say – they'd say, you know, you know, I, I just don't want to burn my son out. And – they had this one kid who was so lazy, never did anything, and had some talent, but he's lazy. I was I was so tired. At the end of one camp, Pete, I go, uh, sir, with all respect, you got to have a little fire going in the belly before you can burn out. And I said that to about his son, and I don't think he came back to my camp, you know. But uh, but we we as parents, that's what we're thinking as parents. And um, my son who plays baseball. I remember, okay, so he says, yeah, Papa, he was he was 10. He goes, yeah, have fun, have fun, have fun. And then when you lose, he says, it hurts really, really bad. And he was crying, and I stopped on the side of the road. I said, okay, well, let me put it to you this way. I go, okay, would you rather feel like you feel now, just terrible, and you're crying, would you rather have that or not play baseball? He goes, no, Papa, I have to play baseball. And I said, right answer. And Tim Wilkinson told me one time years ago, he goes, Coach, he says, I hate losing. His first year on the tour, he said, I only won like five matches or something. 
But he said, more than losing, I hate not playing because I love it that much. And uh, you're right, exactly. The kids, you have to develop a love for it. It's got to be something that you really, really in, in love. But So talk, talk to me real quick. Or tell parents about the fundamentals. Did you take care of the fundamentals? Did you farm the kids out some? But the fundamentals, well, competing versus the training, using USTA or not. Go there a little bit if you could. I, I trained my kids, and uh, and I'll tell you why. I I believe that every kid is different. Every kid has something that's a different skill set than the next kid. They might be similar, but they're not the same. And as you know, my son, Zummy, he's a serving volley chip and charger. And uh, that kind of just happened because I, 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 I call myself, I was green dot before green dot existed. And Zummy started when he was six years old. Mm-hmm. And in order to keep it fun, I brought him close to the net. I taught him how to hold the racket with a continental grip. I told him to put his racket up and I would aim for his racket. So he would volley it over. And that was fun because what, what six-year-old likes to, 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 to not succeed, to miss, to whiff, to hit the ball out, to not be able to hit the ball in or over the net? Nobody. So I said, I'm going to take that disappointment out of the mix and I'm going to move him close to the net. And without him knowing it, he's going to hit the ball over because I'm actually hitting his racket. I'm aiming for his racket. And then I progressed and I moved him backwards. So he started at the net and moved to the baseline as opposed to starting at the baseline and going forward, which, as you know, in this day and age, juniors don't come to the net much, you know. And I think that's a flaw in development of kids is we should start to the net, one, because there's that instant gratification for this young kid that, hey, I'm succeeding. I'm hitting the ball in. Look, Mom. Look, Dad. I'm hitting the ball in. And then as they get better – you move them back. You progress backwards so you actually never lose that zest and that excitement for succeeding. Uh, you know, when you start a kid back at the baseline, I don't care what the dot is, they're still having to hit the ball high over the net and get the ball in. And that's what makes tennis so difficult. And you can only do so much as a coach when it comes to those beginning stages. So that's why I started with the fundamentals. I also, uh, I was fortunate in my life, Chuck, to, to learn how to teach under the great Welby Van Horn. Do you remember Welby? Oh, yeah, of course. He has so much to do with, I think, in India, Puerto Rico. So many of the people had fantastic strokes. Learned them from Welby Van Horn. Yeah, and that's who taught me how to coach and how to teach. And Welby had a theory that you start with balance, and then you move to grips, and then you move to strokes, and then you move to strategy. And unfortunately, I think we skip the first part all together because balance mm-hmm. is about footwork, you know, and things like that. And where now I see we're, we're skipping the second part quite a bit with the grips. I see so many kids that have progressed at a collegiate level that still don't hold the racket properly. And I wonder how, how could, how good could they have been if someone had taught them to hold the racket properly? So I wasn't going to mess with anybody when it came to the fundamentals. I was going to do what Welby taught me to do and uh, work on my my kids' fundamentals. And with Zummy, I saw his affinity was towards the net and moved him back, and he never stopped becoming aggressive and wanting to come to the net, and hence a serving volleyer and a chip and charger and all was born. With Robert, my youngest, he hated tennis. He wanted nothing to do with it, and I never forced him to play. He was a soccer player, played soccer, played baseball, played hockey, 
did everything but tennis because he didn't want to be in his brother's shadow. Uh, just didn't want to do it. It wasn't fun for him. I tried. I, I pushed him a little bit, and he said, absolutely no way. And I was about when he was he's now 17, it was when he was 13, uh, not even 13 and a half, but, but 13, uh, not too long ago, less than four and a half years ago, I, he kind of, with his brother's help, Zummy's help, he said, you know what, it'd be kind of fun to learn how to play tennis. So Zummy took him up, and he would spend time with him, and uh, got, they did it every day at lunch, because they're homeschooled, not for sports, but they were homeschooled for travel. And um, they had a blast. So older brother took younger brother up to the court, did play, and then they go out and get a sandwich. And then I wow. started taking over. And what really got him was he was a big-time soccer player. And what got him was, and I hope I don't offend anybody, but he started getting interested in girls. And he said, you know what, Dad? There's more girls that go to tennis tournaments because <laughs> he's tagged along than there are girls that go to soccer games. The girls at soccer games are the moms and the little sisters. I oh go to boy. these tennis tournaments, and there's girls everywhere. So that's what motivated them. <laughs> that works. <laughs> yep, that, whatever. That works. Well, I, I got a question to ask if you could tell people. Okay, so ball striking, hand-eye coordination, general athleticism, what would you say until about 10, 11, and then really make sure – that fundamentals are locked in before puberty, would you say probably about that age? Not just in general, just in general. Yeah, I would I would say in general, I would start with the fundamentals first, honestly. I would start with the grips uh, because yeah. I, I see, I see and, and I'm not anti-green dot or orange ball or red ball or any of that orange dot or red ball. I just see it kind of gets, it's dumbing it down a little bit to where right. unless you're a very good coach that's very disciplined and makes sure that these kids are getting the fundamentals right, I see a lot of sloppiness. I see, you know, right. kids that go up and, and they, they and I, I understand the theory and I applaud the theory, but at the same time I see there's, it's how the theory is applied. And when, the, and when the coach is lazy, and I hate to say that, but they're out there and they're not sticklers for the fundamentals what happens is these kids become 12 and they're supposed to play yellow ball and they they're holding the racket incorrectly they don't know how to serve properly they don't know how to hit a forehand properly they're right. slapping the ball and and so i would really in my opinion is you start with the basics you know it's reading writing and arithmetic uh, and you start with the basics and you learn how to hold the pencil correctly or the pen correctly and then you learn how to write and you can't go backwards. You can't skip a heavy step. Heavy competition when? Heavy competition when? When they're ready? Well, as I've always said, and I think you will agree, because you've been a college coach for, I don't know, because I was uh, going through the high school ranks and everything, this game for kid, for boys, and somewhat for girls, but I can only really speak for truth for the boys, doesn't start until their second year 16s. There isn't a college coach. Well, I would agree to that. Chuck Creasy is not looking at anybody that's not 16 or older. He doesn't have Absolutely. The, 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 he doesn't have the, the crystal ball that's going to say, this kid's going to continue to play by the time he gets into college. So he doesn't have the resources to go out and recruit a 14-year-old uh, because he doesn't know if that, the resources spent on that 14-year-old are ever going to come to fruition. So I tell everybody, heavy competition with caveat. And that caveat is, that you don't put winning ahead of development. And that's the hardest thing. 
And that's why fun, keeping it fun is so important. Don't punish your kid because he loses. He didn't try to lose. You know, he wanted to win. Make sure he learns something from that loss. Make sure, make sure he learns something from the win. Because, and make sure he learns to sit there and, you know, develop his game so that when 16 and 17 hit, he hit 16 and 17, now the coaches sit there and say, wow, I've got something I'm, I'm interested in. If you skip those steps, one, to, you, you learn to burn out. You might win early in the 12s and 14s, and then you burn out because the pressure gets to you, or you outgrow your game instead of growing into your game. And uh, I think it's important to stress that winning at the 12s is nearly as important as developing at the 12s or the 14s. And I think, unfortunately, that's the parental side of it. People don't understand that. They want to – we're spending money on lessons. We're doing this and that. This must be a terrible coach. My kid can't win. Well, if you want me to build your kid to win at 12, I'm not interested. If you want me to build your kid to win at 16, 17, 18, then I'm interested. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I want to add something, uh, two, two thoughts. Tim Wilkerson made a statement about three years ago, I'll never forget. He said, look, this point system is not the best for motivation. He said parents are interested in points, but kids play for two reasons, rivalries and tournaments of heritage. He said, he said I, I was so competitive growing up, if I lost to somebody, I would wait a year and work a year to try to win back. And he said, but the tournaments of heritage, whether it was the Crackerland tournament or, you know, the Gator Bowl or the Pepsi 16 or the what I have tournaments of heritage or the Pi Cipher up in, but they the were Pi tournaments Cipher, of heritage. <laughs> the, the, they, these were tournaments of heritage where kids want to win Kalamazoo. If you ask a youngster, would you rather be ranked number one in the United States or win Kalamazoo? Pete, what do you think? You know, I would hope to say Kalamazoo. <laughs> make Cal win Kalamazoo, but if yeah, we and, and I don't want to, I'm baiting everybody for the second half of the program here. But the problem is, if they move that Kalamazoo tournament and take that heritage away, just like they did the Peach State, they're changing everything to Peach State. They changed the Belton tournament in South Carolina. You take that away from the kids, you're taking a big, big motivating. Factor way, if you asked a professional player, would you rather be ranked number one in the world or win Wimbledon, Pete? Which one? Well, I'd rather win Wimbledon, and I'd rather win have Wimbledon played at the All England, and I'd rather have him played at the All England club, not some absolutely club in, in England that they've built because Calvin absolutely. We're getting a little too smart for our britches here, and I, I, uh, the, I'm gonna we're gonna go to a quick break here. But I wanted to say that to give you something to think about during the break, real quick, Pete. Will it be a minute or two? But the, I used to tell people that I played for the three drugs that I got. I got dopamine, adrenaline, and endorphins from playing tennis <laughs> with the old wood rackets. I think that the technology yep. has stolen the dopamine rush. From the kids, you used to get a buzz when you hit it in that sweet spot. You would, whoa, whoa, that felt so good. Let me do that again. Whoa, whoa. And you would do it. And then the, the adrenaline from competing, not all kids love the adrenaline, but that's strong. And then, the, of course, the endorphins from training. But those are the big the big hooks. So we will be right back. This Coach Chuck Creasy, and we got Coach Pete Bauer on the phone, and we will be right back in a minute here. Great. Thank you. 
Coach, Chuck Creasy here. And, folks, this is not a sales pitch. Well, I guess it is. I want you to look at Amazon and try to look up my book, Coaching Tennis. It's been out 25 years, but it's rated the number three instructional book in tennis. We just got that report about six months ago, and I'm very, very proud of that. It's called Coaching Tennis. You get it at Amazon and my other tennis books as well. They went out of print, daggone it. But they uh, can still, you can still get winning tennis, youth tennis, and total tennis training. But coaching tennis is the one that you want to get. Parents are still buying it for their kids, and youngsters, reading is still a good thing. Get Coaching Tennis by Coach Chuck Creasy. Coach Chuck Creasy, and we're back with American Tennis. And Pete, Coach Pete Bauer, uh, Dad Pete Bauer, um, also you're running the the tennis academy down there in Florida. I can't do a commercial for you, but uh, ch- look, check it out, <laughs> folks. I, I got, I'm so careful about what I say nowadays, Pete. I always say address <laughs> issues, not people. Nobody ever finds fault. I tried never to talk badly about anybody. It's a good I tell my friends when they try to badmouth people, I go, daggone it. I said, people are going to judge you more about what you say about others than what others say about you. You know, and just shut it. <laughs> and, on, and, and I don't know what to do. You feel like you're getting shot at from 30 different uh, directions. Now, <laughs> this is a very passionate part uh, for me, Pete, because I'm, I want you to talk about college tennis and what's going on. So two weeks ago, let me give you a quick couple very quick statistics here. Okay, a couple things have happened here. First of all, are you, do you know, we know from a thing that came out about two weeks ago, that the United States of America, it's the first time in 45 years we have no player ranked, no male player ranked in the top 30 in the world. All right, no, none. We have not had a Grand Slam champion since Andy Roddick. Now, that's 19... 76 tries in Grand Slam. Actually, two of them got canceled. 74 tries, no American player. But here's some statistics. A good friend of mine named Robert Davis, who's in Cambodia, he's been in Asia for darn uh, 25 years or something, coaching Sam Qureshi, and he set up Cambodian tennis. He's doing really great with a guy named Ritti. Dang, I can't remember Ritti's name, but he's given his life pretty much to trying to get tennis going there. He said, Coach, did you know in the last 10 years we have not had an American even in the finals or probably semifinals, the three masters on clay, which are Madrid, Monte Carlo, and Rome. And Rome. We have had no finalists at Barcelona, which is 500,000, of course, the French. None. None in America. No Americans. No top 30 in the world now and no Americans winning those. It's very, very hard to be ranked in the top 30 in the world, he said, Pete, if you know, if you don't get the points that are in those tournaments. So our players can't keep the ball in the court, basically, he said. Americans are not tough. They, they don't fight through things. There's some lots of talent. They hit tennis balls. They play, they, uh, they play tennis, but they're not down deep tennis players. 
and he, he called it arena tennis, what we're doing in the United States. He called a lot of arena tennis there. And then the, here's the other thing that happened. So I called down to the USTA, to one of my former players who's working down there, and I said, it's not your fault, man. And he says, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. We're trying to get it going. We're having our kids play more three out of five set matches on clay and trying to get them ready and stuff, but it's tough. And I said, it's not your fault. I said, it's the fault of college tennis. I've been in it 44 years. I know, uh, Pete, I've coached 13,000 days, 13,000 practices. Think about that. <laughs> I, I've, coached, I've coached 1,400 dual matches. All right, I figured I've seen over 20,000 competitive matches, and I pay attention to all of them. Now, Pete, I think I know what the heck is going on, but I'm hurting for American tennis, especially college tennis. We're making it an arena football. So uh, here's what he said, too, about Spain. He said, Coach, he says, it's not the fact that Spain has had 30, listen, 30 Grand Slam champions. Now, Nadal's had 25 or something like that of on clay, I think he said. But the Spanish had also five Grand Slam guys out of Ferreira and some other guys. He said, Argentina has done great. He said, but coach, everybody brags it's just about clay. He said, France has zero. The Americans have zero. He says it's about toughness. And then he said, he, called, he referred Pete to corporate tennis will not work. He referred to Great Britain, how they have lots of money and their so, lawn tennis association and everything. If you British are listening to this, I know we get you over there, but you cannot win championships with corporate tennis. It's not a pathway. It's a freeway. With that all being said, I want you to get your – I want to make a point I want, uh, on, on uh, the progression of how you build a, build a player. But, Pete, your sons have gone from junior tennis into the highest level Power 5 conferences. Tell me about what's good, what's bad, what, what we need to do a little differently. Big and well, that's uh, a lot, but that's a lot. I gave you a lot of meat on that bone, so go, go there's ahead. There's a lot of meat on there, and this might be part of the, uh, what did you say, 78.8% we're going to agree upon, and there's leaves a, a little wiggle room for, for some points that we don't agree upon, and it is my theory has always been with my boys, uh, use your junior tennis to get you into a school so you can get an education. And uh, so I, I've never said that they couldn't try to go pro, you know, but get your education first. And I think where college tennis is hurting the most with American juniors is, especially on the boys' side, is there's so many foreigners, Chuck. I mean, we, right. got, we got the number one recruiting class at a school, and it's made up of four foreigners. It just got recruited, number one. Eighty uh, percent. Pete, eight and, out of every ten college players in America are foreign players. It's an immigration program. I promise you. Women's side, Pete. Pete, Title IX was not set up to protect women from Portugal, Spain, France, and Argentina. I don't think Title IX was not. I, it was, I, wasn't I, it? I, the, wasn't it I to agree. protect in my title, daughter? Title IX. Title IX, I agree with Chuck, except for the fact that it's misapplied when it comes to to college tennis and those those non-revenue sports because there's never going to be a sport on the women's side that has the number of scholarships that college football does. 
And right. So we're, football we're should, well, football shouldn't be in the equation, Pete. Pete, football. That's exactly right. If football weren't in the equation, we, would, we wouldn't be having such a drastic problem, I don't think, because programs like Miami of Ohio, you know, wouldn't be dropped. Maryland wouldn't be dropped. We're talking, I mean, how many schools participate West in the Big 12 now? West, amen. West Virginia. Wait a minute now. Purdue, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, Minnesota. all got dropped. All yeah. got dropped. I mean, and so, and you know, and so we're losing these scholarships or these, these opportunities, and the ones that are out there then are going to foreigners. And so when schools are dropping programs because they can't quote unquote afford them, you know, uh, you know, and then the ones that can't afford them are giving the spots to, to you know, kids, non-American kids. It, it, it's how are we supposed to develop? I mean, okay, where, now where give me a solution. Pete, give me a couple solutions. I called USTA and gave them two. I've been fighting this. Uh, oh, you don't want to hear all the stories, but probably since 1988, nine, in there. And then listen, the floodgates opened in about '92 when they dumbed down college tennis, and they said 20 hours work a week. Wait a minute, 20 hours only, and then 25 matches a year. I asked the commissioner of our conference there. The guy I was in at the ACC, is this for academic reasons? He said, oh, absolutely. We were in a meeting room, and, and I go, well, why don't you reward reward the high academic teams if my team needs a 3.1 overall to be able to do whatever we want? Why not let us? Oh, that's not a bad idea. I said, well, I said, if they're 2.9999, or don't, then let's put restrictions on it, but we shouldn't be putting – what I told him, as I said, rules never, ever keep a bad person from breaking rules. Rules only hamper good people who are creative, ambitious, and want to go get things done. So let's talk the solutions. Every parent out there is probably tuning in now say, yeah, yeah, what are we going to do? What are we going to do about it? Because my, if my son's five in the state of South Carolina, Pete, he's not going to get a scholarship to an in-state school. Maybe here nope. where I'm at he'll get some. You know, not not only that, he's not even going to get a spot on the team, and that's the problem. Not going to get. And so, there's, you know, there's no way for him to even. Okay, he doesn't get a scholarship the first year. He walks on, but he's got a spot on the team, and then he can get better. And and so, right. what we're saying to a young kid that just graduated high school is, this is the end of the road. And you know, you don't compete from age. You know, I'll take my son Zummy from age six to to 22 and then have it come to an end of the road once she, you know, somebody was fortunate to be able to play college, but his road could have ended at 17, 18 years old. And Correct. my, my solution is you put a cap on the number of foreigners that are in there and you enforce that. And that means every college team can have, I don't know, let's say two foreigners on their team. Okay. But that opens up so many spots for everybody else and it levels the playing field. Uh, and it really does. I mean, we're talking about resources. Well, I don't even know how some of these schools go and find these kids overseas. I mean, they must they spend a lot of money. They, Pete, they, some of the assistant coaches spend a whole Christmas vacation in Europe, and coaches aren't even going to some of our national tournaments there. Now they're going to Europe, and they're convinced. Now the there's another go. There's another point to that. And I, I want this. To, I want you to do most of the talking, but I got to add a few things. Twenty years old is what we're telling foreign players now. Twenty years old, and you can come into college at twenty. Well, all of our kids are eighteen years old with no professional experience. The kids in Europe, 
they come they go until they're 20 try professional tennis and they play and travel all around and then what happens what happens is they're like semi pros Pete they're like a double a or single-A or double-A baseball player, and they say, well, you know what? We're not going to really make it big, so let's go play college. And they take one of the spots of our American-made kids. Could you imagine the the Charleston River Dogs here having kids that come back and play, you know, at the University of South Carolina or something in baseball? That's what we're doing. The worst part is our ITA in there, instead of addressing the issue – in 1995, the lid blew off. There was 85 players ruled ineligible because they'd taken money. And I remember the little NCAA guy coming in there, Pete, and him going, oh, my gosh, guys, come on, this is tennis. This isn't football or basketball. He was really perplexed that this was all going on. But we were saying, finally, all the cheaters are going to get caught. Well, instead, they came back very shortly and said, well, look, here's what we figured out. If you have somebody that's ineligible, they got to sit out three matches. And the, and the cheaters go, oh, really? Really? Is that it? And that floodgates open. And now, Pete, I've got rule, NCAA rule 12.1-24.2. Prior to full-time college enrollment, a person can make up to $10,000 in prize money, Pete, per year after expenses. Okay, so they blanketed it. Now the floodgates are really open. Sure. So cap, and there's great, cap the foreigners. And, and Chuck, as you know, as you know, there's four and a half scholarships available to a team, but there's so many other ways that these colleges can can you know with the right resources and all they can sit there and uh, massage around the rules. And I think that's the problem. Also, is is you know they're getting these foreigners in. They're taking our spots. And they're offering them wild cards in the tournaments that, you know, maybe it should go to an American kid. They're offering them, uh, you know, free travel on private jets, you know, that an alumni or a uh, a guy on the team uh, has a, a father that's wealthy and has a, pl- a plane. And, you know, it, it's just, it's, we got to level the playing field. We got to, we got to make sure that kids are getting opportunities and it's not just Same about as- winning national championships. The, the same as foreign players. Our kids need the same opportunities. How about, Pete, my friend uh, Jody Hyden in South Carolina area had some kids playing, and he told me he was the coach at Duke women's, he coach at Clemson assistant. He's a great man, great tennis person. He said, Chuck, why don't they just say, look, Americans too, 20 years old, so our kids can go out and play two years if they want to. It gives them the freedom to do that. But if the foreigners are, tell all the foreigners, no, you can't. Well, the foreigners don't start high school a lot of times till they're 15. That's how they get done with it. But here's here's the dirty little secret. Two precedents have been set where capping the foreigners. Number one precedent, junior colleges in the United States. The JUCO leagues had the rule for a lot of years. <clears throat> you could only have two foreigners, and they got away with it for a while. Also, in every country in the world, if you go to try to play soccer or tennis or anything in the Bundesliga in Germany or something, they allow two international players. We are the only ones that just who, who, who leave it open in the floodgates, for the floodgates open. So it's not going to happen because we brought it up several times back even in the early 90s, 
and our head of the ITA would get up and go, oh, no, guys, oh, no, like scared. Oh, no, it'll be a lawsuit for sure. It'll be a lawsuit. They'll cry discrimination. And we had a whole meeting on it one time, and they cried discrimination. Now maybe 40% or 50% of our coaches are international coaches as well. They're foreign players. They're foreigners. So it's not going to happen by penalizing them. So I brought up with the USTA two things. I said, number one, why, let's first of all make an All-American, All-American team. Look, it used to be the Kodak football All-Americans. Why can't the USTA name their own All-American team? But they've got to be All-Americans. All-American, All-Americans. ITA can have their thing, whatever they do, but let's have USTA name an All-American, All-American team. That would be a little bit of incentive. Also, why don't we have a few requirements? The best top 25 teams. You've got to be in the top 25. You've got to be you know, But the best five coaches in the United States, men, women, whatever, folks, USTA sets aside a million bucks and gives the coach a $200,000 stipend because you're doing it with American guys and you're, you're training American players. Okay, how about that now? If I'm a coach sitting there and I got Joe Smith or somebody else, you know, from Venezuela, I'm going to go, oh, no, I think I'll go with Joe here. <laughs> it might right. be a positive incentive. So that's about all I got. Have you got any more ideas what we could do? We have to speak out against it because we're dropping. Well, Why do you think ADs, ADs are dropping programs, Pete? Because it's easy to drop an all-foreign team at Maryland, for example, or somewhere, because, sure. guess what? Parents don't call and complain. It's an easy, it's well, an easy deal well, to do. Well, the other thing, though, is who should complain are the taxpayers. If I'm a Maryland right. taxpayer and it's not going towards Americans or, you know, not just Maryland, you know, residents, but even just Americans, I'm going to say, why am I paying for somebody from you know, Europe or, or South America to come in and, and use my tax dollars to get an education uh, and Correct. then go back to their countries. And so, Correct. Uh, now, you know, you have a dog in the hunt thing. and I will, I'm sorry, go ahead, Pete. Yeah, I have, I have a dog in the hunt, but I also think, Chuck, there's got to be some way that these coaches are held accountable by, I don't know if the coaches panel or something that, you know, right now it just seems like it's, you know, the guy that can, be the most creative in recruiting can get four foreigners can get there you, you go know, on his team. And to me, it, it, at some point, these, these conferences or the ITA or someone has to come up with a panel of coaches, guys that, you know, from, from coaches with, you know, lifetime experience like you to new coaches and everywhere in between. And that panel holds each other accountable because there's no way it's an even playing field. And when it's not an even playing field, it's the guy that's trying to do it right. Like you said, I'm not worried about the rules because I'm following the rules. I'm worried about the guys that aren't following the rules, and they're getting away with it. And, you know, that would stop the influx of foreigners too. Right. Uh, in, about nine, in about 2011, I had a parent uh, where I was coaching at the time. I was up in College Park, Maryland, and parent was on fire because their son was getting left out, and he had spent so many thousand dollars training his youngster, he was beside himself that there was no, there were all the foreigners. I have all the statistics of every team in the country and all that, and he was on fire for about 18 months until his son had to walk on at a D3 school or something. And then the fire went out. The problem is parents, 
you've got game name, uh, you know, some skin in the game, you know, and when you do, you've got to speak up, stand up, speak out. Don't be a sheeple, not a sheeple. Do not be sheeple out there. Stand up, speak out. You don't have to talk badly about other people, but the policy is wrong. The policy is wrong. And, and, and Pete, you're, you're exactly right. And, but again, you know, Coach Kenny Thorne always told me, Chuck, Chuck, you make a lot of good points, but you've got to be able to make a difference. And I, I, you know, part of the reason, Pete, I've stayed with this radio program is that it's a small platform where I, I hope we can make a difference. So I'm hoping people out there well, will listen. And I will Go. tell you, I am, a, I am as big a Kenny Thorne fan as anybody in the world. I trust him with now two of my sons, and Kenny does it the right way. He doesn't bend the rules. He follows the rules. This guy follows the rules. He won't even give you a napkin because it could be an illegal recruiting violation right. if you need to wipe your mouth. He follows everything to the rules, and I think that's what we need to stress with our college. It's not about winning. It's about building and building you know, lives of these right. young men. And the right. winning's a bonus. I mean, it really is. And I think that we're putting winning ahead of development, not development of tennis necessarily anymore, but development of young men and women. Uh, you know, because what is the percentage of the number of kids that are going to gra- graduate from college and, be, and make a living playing professional tennis? It's very slim. Okay. Uh, you're but if we you're right. But... People, you're right, but there's not one coach out there who's doing it the wrong way will ever admit or think that they're doing it the wrong way. Uh, most people who do it wrong and are cheating or something, they'll say everybody in the world would want to be like me if only they knew how. You know, so and and that's that's the thought. So anyhow, Pete, I got one that's more thing. Point. We got we got about seven or eight minutes here, but I want to talk very quickly. I told uh, my friend, I said there's two things: foreigners. Down at USTA, foreigners in college tennis are taking all the spots. For years and years and years, college has been the necessary building blocks and stepping stones to professionals. Most Americans are not wired coming up like international kids are to go straight into the pros. And, and uh, unfortunately, once they go to college, you've, you've had enough of paying 100000 a year or whatever you have to do for the college education. So the point is, I said it was that, but the second thing, Pete, I said, our system in college is, is truly arena tennis. We have shortened everything. We stopped matches before they're clinched. We're only allowed to play 25 matches. And then we came up with things like, and I'll let you, we'll agree on this one, playing a tiebreaker for the third set in the whole state of South Carolina. South Carolinians, your kids aren't even going to get to play a third set in most of the tournaments. They're playing the silly tiebreaker. Can, we, we can agree I, on that one, can't we, Pete? I agree 100%. That the 10-point tiebreaker is, to me, I'm, a, I, I'm minored in philosophy. It, it's illogical, Chuck. How can you and I play each other? You win the first set. I win the second set. We've invested all this effort and time into two sets and then play a 10-point tiebreaker and have it carry the exact same weight as the sets that we just got done playing. I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense. We'd be better off, if you want to be logical, we'd be better off playing two out of three 10-point tiebreakers. At least it's Absolutely. At least, I've got a handout here. At least the first, here. second, and third set are weighted. I've got a handout here to top ten competitive formats for maximum growth in players in order. Best would be three out of five sets. Second would be two out of three full sets, regular scoring, 
Okay, that's the second best tested in learning. Now, if you have to go abbreviated, I put it here. Best abbreviation would be full sets, and then you could start at 2-2 for the third if you need to save time. Or, number four, you could do an icebreaker. Why not play the first set, an abbreviated set? Start at 3-3 in the first set. If you're gonna, or play the tiebreaker for the first set. Call it an icebreaker. That way people would have to win two sets. To, they'd have to still win by winning a full set of tennis. Okay, and then after that, what we're doing in college, two out of three sets, no ad scoring, I've got like number seven or something like that. And we both agree, to, folks, don't let your folks play that, kids play a tiebreaker. One, one, to the parents out there, listen, rites of passage are very important in tennis. Your youngster, when they win a 7-5 in the third or 7-6 in the third after two and a half hours, and they come off that court, they know they have graduated to a whole new level. They have graduated. That's a rite of passage. The youngster who loses that match hurts so bad that they have to go back and decide, do I want to continue this or not? And after they do, their rite of passage will come. It's got to hurt enough when you lose, be great enough when you win. A tiebreaker is like kissing old Aunt Sally. It's not really a kiss when you win. When you lose, the kids blow it off. I lost a 10-6 tiebreaker. I had to play tiebreaker. The analogy, what we're doing is having our kids wrestle for six rounds, and then round seven, we say, I don't know, we're going to box for 30 seconds now. And, and it's, it's just awful. So, okay, talk about no ad real quick here, Pete. i got four minutes. <laughs> right. Well, you know, you know I'm, a favor, I'm in favor of what you said, two out of three full scoring. But I'm also, I hate to say it, uh, and maybe I'm a realist to a fault, but I don't think we're ever going to get back there because the draws are too big, time and college restriction uh, with stu- studies and things like that. So my suggestion is to stay logical, we play two out of three sets of no ad tennis, no 10-point tiebreaker, but at least we then can reduce the time of the matches to where they can get more matches played, uh, and we are consistent where the first set, the second set, and the third set are all the same. And I'll take you for an example. We just had our Peach State here uh, last weekend, and a friend of yours and ours, son, played, and he was all excited that his son played another boy, and they had one game that had 20 deuces. Okay, well, 20 deuces is 40 more points. And you got to remember, with no ad, you have a minimum or maximum of seven points. So if it would have been no ad, instead of playing a 10-point tiebreaker for the third, they would have been five and a half games into a third set. And that, to me, is the, the, the problem with playing. If you're going to try to be logical, you need to make everything weighted the same. And if you're not, what's happening is, you're not going to ever get back to two out of three sets because it just takes too long. They can't finish the tournaments in time unless you reduce the draws, which I'm all in favor of too. You can reduce the draws, but then we're talking money being uh, uh, lost by tournament directors. Good. So Okay. Uh, I know those. I know. think everybody knows those. Or let me say this. 1986, uh, we had uh, a study done, length of matches, no ad, three, two out of three sets versus regular tennis, two out of three. Do you know that regular tennis was shorter? The average was one hour and 16 minutes as opposed, as opposed to one hour and 21 minutes for no ad because on the average of a whole tournament, more three-setters were played with no ad because of the momentum 
automatic momentum swings. In regular tennis, people would break down sometimes. They win the match at 2-1 in the second set, and they have that long game. And that usually cracks the other kid, and I think that's what happened. But here's the point. A good friend of mine, Pete, said, look, when you're teaching somebody, first of all, you lengthen rallies. Second, you learn to lengthen points. Third, you learn to lengthen games. Fourth, you learn to lengthen sets. Wow, you go into – then you learn to lengthen matches. Then you learn to lengthen the tournaments. Kids learn how to get to the semifinals of a tournament. Think. Then you learn how to group tournaments. Then you learn how to group a season and your career. We are taking away one of the most important building blocks of that succession. In baseball, if my son plays baseball, but there are the times when that critical, critical at-bat where it's not just seven pitches where you have a full count, but he fouls off four more before the kid walks him. That 12 pitches or 11 pitches is extremely critical. It's extremely critical against a big server to be able to extend a big server into longer and longer games. So the, and there's so many other subtleties. There's actually 10 of them. I'll send you the handouts. But the big, the big thing about in grouping points, in no-ad scoring, you only have to win one in a row. In regular tennis, you have to win three in a row. If you don't win the first point of the game, you have to win three in a row or four out of five. The biggest problem I have is that game point is an eight-point swing. Could you imagine in basketball, one shot missed would be a 16-point swing. Now, hear me out very quickly. I'll explain this. We have the only sport that when I miss, you get a point. In basketball, could you imagine if you missed and the other team got two points? Could you imagine an eight times that is 8.2 points is a 16-point swing? At 4-4, if you get cheated, get a net court or whatever, the reason that traditional scoring is so good is because it allows people to have to carry leads, learn how to carry leads, but there are so many middle battles. So we're going to have to have a whole con- a whole talk on this, but we're, we're about run out of time. And right, Pete, I just um, I want to get in one word. Go ahead. Jump in. we got that. 30 seconds. Jump in. Jump in. The one word is you forgot what I led off with, and that is I agree with two out of three sets regular scoring over, but I'm trying to eliminate the 10-point tiebreak, and I'd rather have two I agree. three sets I agree. no ad than and, the 10-point And, tiebreak. Pete, they cheated. ITA cheated to get no ad in there. I was in every meeting. It never passed. The coaches never voted it in. The ITA board, the Ivy League guys, because they need parity. You know, it's all right to be smarter than your hound dog. You don't want to have to outrun them. They basically have never had great teams but they they forced no ad in there. They did it. They did it for to create randomness. Now, since that time, Pete, I'm going to give you something to chew on here. I have I have discovered ITF is pushing very hard to get no ad all over the world. And guess what, Pete? I really believe the gambling industry is behind it. Okay, they gave seventy million dollars. Oh, seventy million dollars to the ITF. Seventy million dollars because they want random results. I think we have to fight evil at the source there. Anyhow, Pete, we got to go. I just wanted to thank you so much, and you're gonna, we're going to get a lot of mileage out of this program. I'm going to try to get it out everywhere I can. And I just wanted to thank uh, Pete Bauer, and I appreciate everything that he has done. But, folks, this is Coach Chuck Kreese, reminder you're in the bottom America. America. Every day of your life.